0: Hello, I'm Rob Buckingham and welcome to Digging Deeper, episode 58. Through each podcast episode, we dig deeper into a theme or topic to see what the Bible says about it. This episode explores the inherent goodness of people. Sometimes we Christians fixate on all the evil in the world and what bad people do and surmise that people are essentially wicked. But the Bible says much about people's intrinsic goodness. More on that later. But first, what does the Bible teach us to do when we know we have sinned? Let's find out. Let's get into the first question. I'm Catholic and we have loads of things to do when we sin, LOL. We confess to a priest and he gives us things to do like 10 Hail Marys. What does Jesus and or the Bible tell us to do when we know that we have sinned? I know we should all try not to sin, but we all know we do. Or is it better to just try and live like Jesus and the sinning will be pushed out if we try really hard to live like Him. And if we always try to live like Him, then there is no need to ask for forgiveness or do repentance. And so, first of all, let's look at Hail Marys because uh, if you're not from a Catholic background, you might not know what these are. But Hail Marys are based on two verses out of the first chapter of Luke. The first verse is Luke 1, verse 1 verse 28, and they're both taken from the authorised translation or the King James Version, which of course was authorised by King James, which is why it's called the authorised translation. Uh, The angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favoured. The Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. So note the word there, hail, uh, about Mary. And then... Luke 1.42, and Elizabeth spake out with a loud voice and said, blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And so um, the angel was speaking to Mary the first time, second time to Elizabeth. And these two verses have then um, put together, and uh, that's where the tradition has arisen of saying the Hail Mary. And so the Hail Mary is based on those two verses. It says, "'Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen.'" So uh, I wouldn't disagree with the first part of that. The second part, I would have my challenges with. Roman Catholics say that Jesus is the mother, sorry, uh, Mary is the mother of Jesus, uh, who is God. And so then by deduction, she is the mother of God, but she is not the mother of the Trinity, say the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, This is confusing, though, because who is God? In this case, if Mary is the mother of God because Jesus was God, but she's not the mother of the Trinity, which means that she's the mother of Jesus but not the Father and the Holy Spirit, I guess, I'm really not sure. I would need to talk to one of my Catholic friends and, and get their lowdown on that. As a holy woman, it is believed that her prayers are powerful for God's people, even though she is in heaven. And so that's a little bit of the background uh, of the Hail Marys. Then there are our fathers. So if you go to a Roman Catholic confessional and you confess your sins to the priest, and the priest may give you ten Hail Marys, and five our fathers to repeat, and if you do those, the priest says, then your sins are um, uh, forgiven. So our fathers may also be given to a person on confession to a priest. Our fathers are just simply the Lord's prayer, "Our Father who art in heaven," etc. So I don't agree with Hail Marys and our fathers being prayed x number of times in order to receive God's forgiveness. While praying, the Lord's Prayer can be extremely meaningful. Jesus warned against vain repetition. In fact, in the context of the Lord's Prayer, he said in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 7 When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. He then gave the disciples the Lord's Prayer, which is a succinct, short prayer that includes the way that we are to receive God's forgiveness. And just one line of the Lord's prayer says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That's the uh, King James version of, of that prayer. The Greek word translated there as debts is construed as trespasses or sins by various Bible translations. It can also mean a fault. So We could pray this prayer here, forgive us our faults and imperfections that cause hurt and harm to others. And notice there that Jesus turns the mirror on us first. And and I love that because human nature, well, my nature is often to look at the sins of other people and how other people have hurt me. Uh, But Jesus turns the mirror and says, Rob, look in the mirror first and ask for forgiveness of the way that our faults and imperfections have brought hurt and harm to other people. And so that word debts there can be translated faults, imperfections, it can be translated as sins. And a sin is an archery term in the original Greek language. It means to miss the mark or to fall short. So if you think of Paul's words in Romans, for example, all have sinned, and fallen short of the glory of God. And as I say, it's an archery term, and and imagine there, there's a bow and arrow, and you're, you're pulling back on the drawstring, and then you let it go, and the arrow flies out toward the target, but it falls short of the target. That's what a sin is. So the target is the character of God, the perfection of God's character. But, of course, we all fall short of the target of the perfection of God's character. The beautiful thing is that in Jesus Christ, through his life, death and resurrection, it's like he gives grace, which which kind of means that he gives some extra power to our arrow and every time it hits the bullseye. But not because of us, it's because of Jesus and the righteousness that he has given to us through his life, death and resurrection. So that's sins, an archery term, missing the mark. Debts refers to literally something that's owed we are indebted to another person because we have uh, hurt them or harmed them or offended them in some way by something that we have said or done and now we we put ourselves in their debt because now we need them to give us forgiveness and cancel our debt and we do that for others and it can also be translated as trespasses Uh, trespassing of course, is venturing uninvited into somebody else's territory, and so if we're being a busybody, for example, we're butting into somebody's conversation uninvited, then that's a trespass. Or if if we speak a word that offends, that's a trespass. It's it's been uninvited in somebody else's life, and so we can all relate to these things, can we not? We all sin, we all trespass, others sin and trespass against us. Um, But as I say, Jesus turns the mirror on us first. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And so we ask God for forgiveness on the basis that we have already forgiven. Um, And so as Jesus talks about in those same verses as well in the Sermon on the Mount, we should focus on our plank first before we try and take the speck out of somebody else's eye. So with all that in mind, let's explore what the Bible has to say about receiving God's forgiveness, how to receive the forgiveness of God, and I want to offer a few thoughts here. First of all, simply ask for it. We simply ask for God's forgiveness. Forgive us our debts. 1 John 1, 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The word there, to confess, confess your sins, um, means to agree with. So we know what when we've done the wrong thing, we know it, right? And so all God wants us to do is fess up, is to say, yeah, 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 I, I agree that what I just said or did or what I should have said but didn't or should have done but didn't, I agree with you, God, that I was wrong. It's the same if you've got children. Uh, you know that with your kids, you know when they've done the wrong thing, and you just want you don't want to you don't want them saying to you, oh, "No, I didn't do that, Dad." You just want them to agree. Yeah, you know what? I dropped the ball. You're right, Dad. I am sorry. And on the basis of that, invariably, of course, forgiveness flows. The second area of forgiveness is to confess to another person james chapter 5 and verse 16 confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed so restored forgiven made whole from from the offense the prayer of a righteous person is powerful And effective. The Bible doesn't specify, by the way, that this has to be a priest. Uh, So you can confess to another Christian. Be wise in the person that you choose to confess to. Make sure that they are a person of character, that they're not a gossip. I I always listen to people's language. Are they spending time talking about other people? Do they do that really holy thing, you know, when they come to you and say, I shouldn't probably be telling you this, but I'm just telling you so you can pray about it. Oh, I mean, please, you know, excuse me. Just just don't violate somebody else's um, secrets and, um, and their privacy. And so always make sure that you're wise in who you sit and talk to, uh, preferably someone who loves Jesus and is mature in their faith um and of course you know when someone comes to me and say pastor rob i I've, I've done something wrong and and i need you to i need to tell you about it but i need you to promise me that you won't tell anyone i'll always say to them yeah i'm a safe place to share with but if you've broken the law i will report it um i have to these days there is mandatory reporting for ministers of religion and so I would report that, um, but, you know, I would still encourage the person to, to confess so that they might be healed. I have found with people that particularly addictive behaviour needs um, not just the person to ask God's forgiveness but also to bring themselves into an, a, an accountability relationship with somebody else. So a strong Christian, someone who is a safe place that can then journey with them uh, through that addiction, uh, often with the help of other professionals as well, and bring them to a place of healing and wholeness. The third thing is making restitution where possible. There are several verses uh, in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers that speak about restitution, when something is stolen It should be repaid when something is borrowed and damaged by the borrower. It should be replaced. And so, as I say, a number of verses in the Hebrew scriptures, the Tanakh, about that. I think one of the highlight stories for me in the Bible is the story of Zacchaeus, the little guy. He was a chief tax collector. He would have become a very wealthy guy by being fairly corrupt. He heard about Jesus, wanted to see Jesus but couldn't because there were so many people there, climbed a tree so that he was up in the tree looking at the procession, Jesus walking along, all of his followers, and Jesus stands under the tree, looks up and says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to invite myself to your place for lunch today. And uh, we're not told in Luke 19 what the conversation was, but it must have been so impacting that salvation came to Zacchaeus's house. And um, toward the end of the conversation, Luke tells us that Zacchaeus stood up and said these words to Jesus, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. That is phenomenal. I love the way he just throws the if in there. Of course he had cheated lots of people out of lots of money. In modern-day terms, this guy would have been a multi-billionaire and he just pumped 50% of his net wealth into the economy of Jericho. That would have been a a life-changing event for that city and then for him to pay back four times the amount that he had cheated people out of. Can you imagine people in Jericho suddenly getting a check from Mr. Zacchaeus for four times what he had ripped them off? I mean, this was a life-changing thing. No wonder Jesus wanted to go to his house. Fascinating, though. Have a read of Luke 19 and see how all the people complained and grumbled against Jesus when he said he was going to have have uh, time at Zacchaeus's house. I bet they changed their tune. Uh, I had a similar story before I became a Christian. I was an atheist and uh, while I was going through radio school in Perth, I was in night school uh, two nights a week studying to be a radio announcer and I was working during the day in a record store in Perth And I was managing the cassette department and I'm ashamed to say, um, but during my year there, I stole some stuff. I stole uh, some records and cassettes and I also stole some money from the till. Uh, I was eventually found out for what I had done. I denied that I had done it at the time, but then they looked for an excuse to sack me and eventually did. So um, I then uh, went to my first radio job, and then went traveling around Australia when I became a Christian um, between the ages of 19 and 21. And then when I was in my mid-20s, I went off to Bible college, and in the second year of Bible college, I was uh, doing ethics as a subject. And the topic of restitution came up, and I felt really convicted by the Holy Spirit, of what I had done in this record store and denied that I had done it and I had never made amends for what I had done. And I kept saying, well, you know, God, I'm forgiven because of Jesus. But, but the Holy Spirit was just relentless. And in the end, I went and had a chat with my ethics lecturer and I explained to him what I'd done and asked for his advice. And he said, well, I, I would encourage you to ring your old boss and confess what you've done and offer to make restitution. So I did that with great fear and trepidation. I uh, I rang my former boss and she answered the phone and I said to her, I said, oh, well, it's Rob Buckingham here. And she went, oh, yeah. And I said, look, um, you remember um, sacking me and accusing me of stealing and I denied that I had done that. But I said, I've become a Christian and I'm in Bible college and I'm training to be a pastor. And I want to just apologise to you uh, and be honest. I did steal and I'm not exactly sure how much I stole, but I want to make restitution. Um, All I have in my bank account right now is my next semester's fees and it's $1,000. I'm wondering, would you be okay if I sent you that as a money order um, and would you forgive me? And she said, yes, I would forgive you. And, uh, so I sent the money order off for a thousand bucks, drained my bank account. I didn't have enough to pay my fees for the next semester. I had to go and get some more work and, um, and generate some money for my fees. Um, and I slipped a little tract in there too, about how to become a Christian. I don't know whether I should have done that or not, but I sent that off to her, never heard another word But I can tell you the presence of the Holy Spirit flooded my heart and my mind, and I knew that I knew that I knew that I had done the right thing in making restitution. And uh, I'm able to tell you that story today without a weight of guilt uh, because I did make restitution. Uh, Fourthly, try not to sin but. Uh, 1 John two one, my dear children, says John, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So, you know, try not to sin, but we all know that you will, says John. So, And when we do, we have this advocate who is Jesus. The word advocate there is parakletos in the Greek, which is the word translated as comforter in John 14, 16, where Jesus says, I will send you another comforter. Uh, The word comforter there is probably not the best translation of that word. Advocate is a legal advocate who makes the right judgment call because they're close enough to the situation. And I love that. So Jesus is close enough to you. He knows all about you. He, he, he knows everything I've ever done wrong and he loves me anyway. He is my advocate and he's also close to the Father and he can plead our case to the Father for us. And so the advocate is someone giving evidence that actually stands up in court. In this case, it's Jesus Christ the righteous one. The final thing I'd say about this is rely on the Holy Spirit. I'll just respond there to one of the things mentioned in the question, or is it better to just try and live like Jesus and the sinning will be pushed out? If we try really hard to live like him and if we always try to live like him. And and I just want to comment there about the, the, the words, if we try really hard. And I would share caution here because we all have a sin nature and it doesn't matter how hard you try, you're going to slip up. And so really, rather than just trying hard, can I encourage you to rely on the Holy Spirit and to rely on the grace of God. When you're feeling tempted, don't struggle against it. Just go go to God in prayer and be honest with Him. I found this really powerful in my own life. I say, God, you know I'm struggling with this at the moment and I invite you, Holy Spirit, to come in right now and and give me the strength that I need to rise above this temptation. I find a prayer like that, a prayer that's short and sweet, um, that is honest and relying on the grace of God is really important. When we're tempted, ask for the Grace of God and the Holy Spirit. Comment about repentance here too, because invariably when we hear about repentance, it's it's um, from an angry preacher, you know, kind of shaking the hand and going, "You're going to repent, or or else." And re- that's not what repentance is. in In the Hebrew mind, repentance is best shown by Jesus' story of the prodigal son. The son, as you are probably aware, read the story, it's in Luke 15 if, you, if you're not aware of the story, but the boy um, got his inheritance and left and wasted everything on uh, prodigal living, wasteful living, ran out of money, uh, got a job feeding pigs, and then came to his senses and went, I'm going to go home to the father. That's repentance. Repentance is coming to your senses and realising you should never have left. And then coming home and i want you to notice there the boy had he had this rehearsed speech that that the father never gave him time to to finish because the father was looking out ran toward him gave him a hug welcomed him home that's what repentance is all about. It's just realising how far you've walked away and coming home to a loving father. I want you to note from that story as well, relationship with the father was never broken. Fellowship was. The boy had removed himself from the father's fellowship, but, but the son never ceased to be the son of the father. So the relationship was always intact. And so there are a few of my thoughts on what the Bible tells us to do when we know that we have sinned. We hope you're enjoying this Digging Deeper podcast and finding help understanding the Bible and how it applies to life. Here at Digging Deeper, we'd appreciate your help letting others know about this podcast. One way to do this is by rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes. And please like rob buckingham's public figure page on facebook you can interact with us there and ask questions you'd like rob to answer in future episodes of digging deeper now back to rob the background to this is my recent conversation about reformed theology and reformed doctrine particularly the doctrine of total depravity and i made some comments that you know i don't believe that people are totally depraved i real i I realize that we all have a sin nature whatever you want to call it we we don't live up to our own standards for our lives invariably let alone god's standard but i don't believe that we're totally depraved and so from my comments on that i want to address the question of what does the bible teach about the goodness of people and I want to say up front here, I do not deny people's sinful nature and our need for a saviour, for the forgiveness of God. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God who lived, died, and rose again for the salvation of the entire human race. And neither do I deny that some people appear to be intrinsically evil. I was looking at the story of um, of uh, Dharma Recently, um, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, you know, some people are intrinsically evil. But with that in mind, I think it would be good for us to look at what the Bible says about people's inherent goodness. I've never spoken about this, I don't think, publicly. I've uh, spoken many times about the goodness of God. I've never heard uh, a sermon or actually Christians even talking about the goodness of people. Um, uh, I think invariably we're preoccupied by sin. Our message, our Christian message is the gospel of Jesus. That is that there is salvation and forgiveness uh, through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I think that's led us as Christians to invariably be a little bit preoccupied with sin. And I think sometimes we're a little bit preoccupied about everybody else's sin more than our own, which is why I'm fascinated with the fact that Jesus turns the mirror on ourselves. I think also we tend to think that the Bible began with Genesis chapter 3, but it doesn't. It doesn't begin with the fall. It doesn't begin with the disobedience of the first humans when it comes to uh, God and his commands. The Bible begins at Genesis 1 and so rather than fixating on all the evil in the world and what bad people do and then summarizing that uh people are inherently evil why don't we explore the inherent goodness of people now when i talk about this i find that there is often resistance in people's minds and if you let's just take a moment right now and and be self-aware When I talk about the inherent goodness of people, do you feel resistance in your mind? If you do, that's actually a very normal human experience. I I interacted on someone's Facebook page about a week or two ago and I put a comment about the inherent goodness of people and someone on that page took exception with my comment and we had a discussion. And uh, he came up with all of these reasons I was wrong and quoted Bible verses to me. And, and I, I just kept saying, yes, but if you look at the Scriptures, search the Scriptures, and and find out what the Bible says about the goodness of people. And, and he said, well, I don't need to because people are sinful, people are evil, and people need to be saved. And, and I kept saying, no, but if you go back to the Scriptures, you'll find a lot in there. So he, we'll name some names and verses. And I said, why don't you do due diligence yourself? Search the scriptures. I didn't want to give him all the answers, um, uh, but he wouldn't. So uh, that resistance was in his head. And and so resistance is a typical response in your brain to information that goes against long-held beliefs. Your brain will respond first by resisting the new information, and then next your brain will explain why this new information is wrong, and if it's um, Christian information like we're talking about here, there will be Bible verses that will come up in your mind, what about this, what about this, that will contradict the new information. So in my first part of the answer to this question, I want to look at some of the whatabouts that we find in the Bible that may contradict what I'm saying about the inherent goodness of people. The first of them is this rich young guy who comes to Jesus. We read this in Mark chapter 10 and verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and knelt before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Next verse, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Interesting, isn't it? Because this young guy is saying to Jesus, you're a good teacher. And Jesus says, why are you calling me good? No one's good except for God. Uh, Is Jesus here saying that he's not good? No, he's not. In fact, what I believe Jesus is doing in this verse is he's trying to draw this young man's perspective out of him Uh, the kind of question that jesus might be asking him is are you saying that you recognize that i am god in human form interestingly enough the same greek word here that's translated as good is applied to people elsewhere in the gospels have a look at matthew chapter 25 and verse 23 his master replied well done good and faithful servant You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Jesus talked about good people in Luke chapter 6 and verse 45. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And so a good a good man brings good things out of the good that is stored up inside them, and so right there Jesus is talking about people's inherent goodness. What about um, a statement that Jesus made uh, in his Sermon on the Mount? This could be another. What about what about what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, where he talked about people being evil? Jesus said, "If you then talking to people, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in Heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So there you go. There's a what about. People are evil. Jesus said it. What did he mean? Well, Jesus' choice of words is very interesting. He didn't use the Greek word referring to a person's evil character. Neither did he use the word meaning degenerate. He actually used a specific word, a uh, Greek word here, uh, which the translators have chosen in, in some translations to uh, put as the English word evil. But it actually also has the connotation of annoyance. And we could translate Jesus' words here talking to people and their interaction with children. Even though you sometimes find your children's requests irritating, you still give them good gifts. And that actually fits the context, the broader context, that we're reading of here in the Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus is actually referring to the hassle of parenting and how much better a parent is uh, the Heavenly Father is compared to us. He is not calling people evil or wicked. Instead, he's recognising our inherent goodness toward our children, even during times of stress or reluctance. So as a parent, I have had this experience on numerous occasions where my kids might be annoying or persistently asking for something and I've been saying no, but in the end, because I'm inherently good, despite my annoyance with them, I will give them good gifts. And so I believe that's what Jesus is talking about there. Now, there's also a verse in Psalm 14 where the psalmist says, there is none who does good, not even one. That seems to be very blunt, doesn't it? There's none who does good, not even one. Paul then quotes this statement in Romans chapter 3, where he concludes the beginning of his letter, seeking to prove the universal sinfulness of human beings. He presents this as a black background upon which he places the gem of God's grace, and that's the point in this statement. All people are sinful and no amount of good deeds can save us, but do not fear because God has come to our rescue and God's amazing grace can restore us. Elsewhere in the Bible, this same Hebrew word used in, Uh, Psalm 14 is used to describe good people. Uh, Consider 2 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 27. The king says this about Ahimaez, the son of Zadok. He is a good man. He comes with good news. And so that same Hebrew word that's used in Psalm 14. Uh, Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 2. Good people obtain favour from the Lord, but he condemns those who devise wicked schemes. Good people. Proverbs 13.22, a good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children, but a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. Proverbs 14.14, the faithless will be fully repaid for their ways and the good rewarded for theirs. And then James says, sometimes the tongue praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those Who've been made in the image of God? I want to look at, at at the image of God here because, as I said earlier, invariably I think in our thinking we start reading the Bible at Genesis chapter three, with the the sinfulness of people, the the, the fall of humanity. But the Bible starts at Genesis chapter one with God creating the world, and He stops down every few verses, and he says, and it's good, and it's good, and it's good, and at the end of creation, the creation of human beings, he looks and he says, it's very good. So he declared people and his entire creation to be very good. And so we've got to start at the story's beginning rather than three chapters in. The Bible begins and ends with goodness Human beings are made in God's image, and nowhere does it say that that image has been destroyed by the fall. And we'll look again at that verse from James. James says this, sometimes the tongue praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. So people, all people are made in the image of God. And the image of God is good. Sin taints the image, but it doesn't destroy it. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, it tells us in the New Testament scriptures. And those who follow him are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory or the character of God to another. Generally speaking, people are still very good. Yes, we all miss the mark of God's perfect character but that doesn't mean that we're powerless to live good lives. And in fact, most people do live good lives. In his warning to watch out for false prophets, aka bad religious people, Jesus encouraged his followers to discern people's fruit. He tells a short parable about trees, but he's talking about people. Good trees, good people, said Jesus, bear good fruit. And bad trees, bad people, bear bad fruit. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Jesus recognized rather the inherent goodness in most people, but he also challenged us to remain vigilant, especially when it comes to dodgy religious people. And we've really got to be uh, on the lookout there. The Bible itself is packed with good people. Think about people like Ruth, Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, the first Gentile Uh, who becomes a convert, a really good man, an Italian guy. Read the story in Acts chapter 10. Noah was a good person. Mary and Joseph, Esther, Boaz, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, the guy who gave Jesus uh, his tomb in his death. Nameless people in the Bible. Think about Pharaoh's daughter, the way she rescued Moses and made sure that Moses was safe. Um, and the Ethiopian eunuch again in the book of Acts. Then there's the good Samaritan. Think about that. Now I acknowledge the fact that he was a fictitious character in one of Jesus' stories but interestingly enough Jesus highlighted human goodness in a parable with which religious Jews would have struggled. Samaritans were mixed race Jews. Centuries-long hostility between the two peoples meant that they would have little or nothing to do with each other, and yet here Jesus is suggesting that the hated other is a good person and demonstrates their goodness by being kind to their enemy. Think about that. Even in the world surrounding us today and there's still the amount of ethnic group hostility that exists in our world, Uh, As you're aware, probably, Christy, my wife, is Irish. She was brought up in Northern Ireland uh, in the Troubles, the the terrorists uh, on both sides uh, doing horrendous things over several decades, Uh, the Protestants and the Catholic Irish people and and the hatred, the ethnic hatred that exists um, even still in some places in Northern Ireland. Uh, In the 90s, we saw in Rwanda the massacring of Hutu and Tutsi um, tribes, uh, Israeli and Palestinians, and so on and so forth. And so here we see Jesus telling a story to Jewish people about a good Samaritan. Fascinating. Um, And and so who would God pick today or who would Jesus pick today if he was telling a similar story? parable. He would pick the person that you like the least and tell a story about their goodness. Something to ponder. Why do Christians believe in the inherent badness of people? Why do we think that people are evil? I'll offer three possible answers to that. I think, first of all, uh, the Christian's emphasis on sin causes us to focus on people's wickedness rather than their best or their goodness. The doctrine's like the Reformed doctrine of total depravity. It says that people are are totally depraved. Well, actually, no, they're not. Most people live incredibly good lives. The second reason I think that we focus on uh, people's badness is a uh, a futurist version of Bible prophecy that sees the world worsening, The world, according to the futurists, has to be worse and worse and worse and worse, and it kind of ends with Antichrist and tribulation and Babylon and everything being as bad as it possibly can be, except the world over the centuries in many ways has actually become better and better and better. Now, I am not saying it's a perfect world, and at the moment we're facing a lot of Uh, really serious stuff with war and floods and famines and climate change and all of this different stuff going on in our world at the moment. Um, But the futurist Bible prophecy will see the world as getting worse. And so it minimizes human goodness. The third reason, I think, is because there's something in human nature that often draws us to negative information. If you don't believe me, check out your evening evening news. News sources invariably will focus on the unusual and the critical um, rather than the good news stories. They actually, good news stories don't rate. And so if we consume a lot of news, in inverted commas, you will believe that the world and its people are actually worse than they are. But open your eyes and reflect on the world around you and the people that you know personally. There is so much good being done by decent people and some of them are Christians. As my rabbi friend wrote recently, if God had created us as perfect, he would have denied us the profound joy of being human to improve. The process of being today a better human than we were yesterday and the hope of being better people tomorrow. If we were robbed of that sacred imperfection, we would be imprisoned by our perfection. Wise words indeed. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Every Wednesday, a new episode of Digging Deeper is released. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with others and rate and review us on iTunes. That goes a long way to help others find us. If you have a question or topic you'd like Rob to address, please contact us at Rob Buckingham's public figure Facebook page. Join us next week as Pastor Rob discusses why God selected Israel as his chosen people out of all the nations. Also, should we buy Christian merchandise as a way of sharing our faith? Rob will also examine what the Bible teaches about people's brokenness. Are we broken and in need of fixing? All that and more next week. We hope you'll join us then.